The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning, Park Church. Good morning. We have a few announcements before we get to our scripture reading for today. The first one is we're going to be offering a premarital class beginning on Sunday, October 29th, running through Sunday, November 19th. The class is going to go from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. on those on those Sundays. If you're considering marriage or engaged or just want to come, we would invite you to attend. In addition, if you're married and your marriage is struggling or if you just want to do some proactive work, on your marriage. We would invite you to attend as well. The, the same things that get a marriage going and getting off on the right foot are likely the same things that married couples have stopped doing or in a bad way are continuing to do. So we would invite you if you're married to please feel free to attend that. We would love to have you there. Uh, you can sign up for that class in C- uh, CCB through a form titled premarital marriage class. If you're visiting or are new to Park Church, we'd love to get to know you. Join us right after the service, down this hallway and to the right, there's a room marked introductions. It's a short 10-minute meeting right after the service. If you do call Park Church your home, we'd love for you to consider giving in three ways. First, giving of your time and your service, using your gifts, your talent, your passion to love and serve this church body, but also to love and serve our city. Next, to give of your, to give of your money, Uh, to support the things that we do as a church, and frankly, just for the blessing of giving. And then third, to live on mission within this city, to live with a sense of urgency in the city that we want to call to repentance and restoration. And lastly, the scripture for today is Revelation 7, 9 through 12. Good morning, Park Church. As Jason said, our scripture reading this morning is found in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. In the Pewback Bible, it's found on page 1032. Uh, We invite you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, please take one of these home as a gift from Park Church. Again, we'll be reading from Revelations chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elder, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their knees before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Hope you're all doing well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into this passage with you. Um, Before we do, just a few moments. I just want to talk about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, We just finished a, a series on our mission as a church. We exist as a church to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. And at the heart of that mission is the gospel, this gospel we've been singing about, this good news. 
Good news that Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world. Good news that Jesus, the Son of God, took our sin upon Himself. He went to the cross. He paid the penalty of our sin, taking that curse upon Himself. That His body was broken. His blood was shed. That we could be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. And that we could be in His kingdom. Welcomed into His kingdom as worshipers. Welcomed into His kingdom as a family. Welcomed into His kingdom as people that exist for His glory in this world. And so we've been unpacking that for a while, but we want to take a moment kind of before we move back into Acts, which we'll move into next week, and we want to hone in on this last phrase of our mission that we exist to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. All people. I want to talk about what does the gospel have to do with the joy of all people. And in Revelation chapter 7, we see a vision of a kingdom that's comprised of all people, all nations, all ethnicities, all people groups and tribes and languages and cultures, all together worshiping God forever and ever and ever. And this morning what we're going to talk about is what does the gospel have to do with race? What does the gospel have to do with race? Now we've spoken a few times in the midst of what our country has been walking through. Really our country has been walking through incredible difficulties with respect to race for the entirety of our existence as a nation. But over the past few years, seeing increasing public attention to racial divisions and racial injustices in our nation. And we've spoken at various moments and various times in response to events that have happened. But a little over a year ago, we were convicted as a leadership team, as an elder team, that that responding to these things isn't enough. This is a real issue. It's a real area of brokenness in our nation that affects us as a people. And the gospel speaks to it. The gospel actually gives us a vision, a beautiful vision of what God's kingdom is like and how the nations, the ethnicities in our world are united together around the gospel, around Christ crucified and risen as one family of worshipers for God's glory forever and ever and ever. And we felt overwhelmingly burdened about our own ignorance about these issues, our own blindness in our own hearts. And we began as an elder team beginning to read and to study and to begin engaging relationally, asking questions of friends, pressing in with people that were generous to us to give us time and their own vulnerability and their own stories where we could start gaining empathy and leaning into these things. And the more we have, the more we've been convicted by the Spirit of God that this is an issue that we must press into proactively as a people, as a church. The gospel has something for us in the way that we as a church engage with issues related to race. Now, I am very aware that I'm walking into a a minefield this morning. Like, I am walking into a minefield right now, and I'm already starting to, to set off minds in the hearts of some of the people in this room. For some white people in this room, which this room is predominantly white, for some white people in the room, you're saying thank you. Thank you. I care about this issue too. I've been frustrated about this issue. I'm hurting about this issue. I'm so thankful that our church would press into this. Some of you are feeling that. Some of you are feeling, how do I get out of here right now? There really are, and I understand that. Some of you have felt guilted. You felt shamed. You felt people kind of prodding you with these kind of guilt sticks on this issue. You feel frustrated with public discourse around these issues. You feel different things that have happened that have kind of tripped you off. You feel every time it comes up, this is going to be a disaster and you want to get out of here. I understand that you're here. 
Some of you are just tired of it. You're tired of us talking about it. You're tired of the discourse that's happening. You're feeling just exhausted of these issues. Why do we have to keep talking about this? I understand that you're here. And I want to ask you for grace this morning. The Gospel demands that we press into this. It demands that we press into this. And I need your grace. I need your patience. I need your your perseverance with the issue. And then there are also people in this room from minority cultures, people of color in this room, that that you're going to feel different things. Some of you feel fought for in these things. Some of you feel wearied by the discourse, frustrated by the discourse, frustrated by the lack of action behind words that have been spoken. Some of you feel vulnerable right now. Like you feel that talking about this is more isolating for you. And I hate that. You have been the most significant person on my heart as I've been preparing this message. I'm okay offending a lot of you. I'm like, really? I'm fine with it. Um, because God has been convicting me in deep ways. But for those in our room, people of color in our room, the fact that you might feel singled out or isolated more um, makes me sad, and I hate that. I hate that for you. I'm sad about that reality. I want to ask you for grace. I want to ask you for grace. I want to ask you to continue to lean in. And I hate that, that that's cost you something in the midst of this discourse. But we're asking God to give us grace that we can actually pursue his vision of the kingdom of God, which is a beautiful, beautiful vision. And, and so we're thankful that we're not alone in this conversation. God has given us the Holy Spirit. Uh, a name of the Holy Spirit in the Bible given over and over again is the Helper. And so we're going to ask the Holy Spirit for help this morning. Would you join me as we pray? Holy Spirit, we need your help. Uh, The vision that we just read about in Revelation chapter 7, that we read about in Revelation chapter 5, that we read about over and over in your word of this this multi-ethnic communion, this family of worshipers worshiping you before your throne is beautiful, but it's not what we experience here. It's not what we're experiencing this morning. And so we need your help. So would you please, Spirit of God, pour out grace. Like hearts that are immediately triggered around these things, that are looking for a way out or shutting down, would you pour out your grace on them? People that feel nervous about this, would you pour out your grace on them? Would you pour out your grace on me? I am nervous about the, the, the care with which to, to navigate issues because of the complexity of the experiences and the pain and the history that exists in this room. So, Spirit of God, would you govern us? Would you guide us? Would you lead us towards your vision of your kingdom for your glory and for our joy and the joy of all people forever? Amen. It was August 28, 1963 when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and delivered in front of 250,000 people his famous I Have a Dream speech, uh, a speech that was rated among most scholars the greatest speech of the 19th century and and 20th century. Um, (laughs) The greatest speech of the 20th century, of the 1900s. It's always confusing. It always trips me up. It's the greatest speech of the 20th century where Dr. King casts a vision for what the world could like. A vision for what the nation could look like. And I want to read to you a section from his speech. 
as he feels, as he stands in front of so many who have been hurt so deeply, he says this, Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of the former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. And then he moves into where his dream is rooted. He says, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low and the rough places will be made plain, the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh, all flesh shall see it Together, This is our hope. And this is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This is Dr. King's dream, and it's rooted in God's vision for his kingdom. He's quoting Isaiah 40. He's quoting the the Isaiahic prophecies that in the midst of a broken world, there will be a day when the mountains will be made low and the valleys will be exalted. There will be a day when God's glory will flood and all flesh, all nations, all people groups, all tribes, all languages will see it together. There will be a day when men and women from different tribes and different ethnicities and different colors will be bound together as a family, brothers and sisters. There will be a day when the crooked places are finally made straight. Injustice is no more. That day is coming. And Dr. King had a vision of that day. He dreamt of that day. He dreamt about the kingdom of God. His vision was a vision of the kingdom of God. And so this morning as we wade into this issue, I want us to look at that vision. I want us to look at the vision of the kingdom of God from Revelation chapter 7 and say, What kind of kingdom is God building? What happened to it? Because what God's building is not what we're experiencing. There's brokenness. What happened to that vision of the kingdom? What's God doing to restore it? To redeem it? And what does that mean for us in the way we live? So let's look together at what kind of kingdom is God building? If you close your Bible, open it back up to Revelation chapter 7. What kind of kingdom is God building? Verse 9. After this I looked, 
This is John giving a vision of the future glory of God's kingdom. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. One loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What kind of kingdom is God building? God is building a kingdom where His manifold beauty is seen through the diversity of His people. God's building a kingdom where His manifold beauty, His diverse excellencies, Jonathan Edwards would call them, His 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 diverse beauty is seen through the diversity of His people. It's a a vision of a glorious harmony of diverse people living together in unity as one family before their God. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's like a tapestry of different people woven together that that kind of the end result is this beautiful picture of God's glory, full of love and kindness, full of humility and self-sacrifice, full of um, uh, honoring and evaluing of one another, full of kindness and patience towards one another as different people live together as brothers and sisters in His family. It's a beautiful picture of God's glory. And it's much more beautiful than a kingdom of uniformity would be. That, That the diversity of God's kingdom is much more beautiful than any sort of kingdom of uniformity would be. I remember in like third grade, I got a recorder. Do you remember getting a recorder? Or do you remember your children? A lot of us are getting to the age where our children are now getting recorders. Um, I remember learning Ode to Joy. <laughs> remember? do, 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 you know, it's like, and it was like almost that annoying. Like, right? Like, children playing that song in the recorder is like more annoying than me humming that song in front of you. Like, that's how bad it is, right? This sort of like single tone, this single melody, kind of boring. That little melody taken from a beautiful symphony written by Ludwig van Beethoven, his ninth symphony, as a part of this fourth movement that's full of these tensions and these contrasts that kind of move together into this beautiful awakening of joy. When you think of the glory of God being experienced, and you think of it being experienced by a uniform people, it's like the recorder playing Ode to Joy. Like, neat little, neat little kind of tune there. You know, I could see it at the beginning of some sort of insurance commercial or something like that. You know, like this, just memorable, but not beautiful not overwhelming, not like something that's just so captivating. When you think of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, that's something altogether different. That's a masterpiece of beauty because the diversity of the instruments and the tones and the rhythms that are coming together into this beautiful harmony 
This is what God's building among a diverse people group. It's actually a beautiful harmony of diversity, pulling together different people where actually our relationship with God together in diversity gives Him glory. Can you, can you get your mind around this? That there is a leader, there is a leader who exists that is able to unite people from every single nation, every ethnicity, every tribe, every culture, every background, every perspective. Can you imagine the glory of a leader that is able to unite such different people? Can you imagine that? You think about right now, any leader in our nation and kind of who gravitates towards them, it tends to be people that are just like them. This leader has the ability to actually captivate the imagination and the affection and the adoration and the worship of people from every single ethnicity and culture. That this morning, there are people gathered around our world from nation after nation, people group after people group, tribe after tribe, all are overwhelmed at the glory of Jesus. All follow Jesus with joy. All feel like Jesus is their king, their savior, their shepherd. The glory of that kind of king is spectacular and God is building a kingdom where that will be seen and enjoyed forever and ever and ever. And the fact that it's enjoyed by such different people, it means that there's nothing about any one group of people that gives them any sense of superiority over other people. Because he's pulled together people from every nation, from every culture. So there's nothing about being who you are that makes you kind of in particular a special one of God's people. It is all about his grace. It's all about his love. It's all about his pursuit of a diverse people for his glory. Jesus is building this kind of kingdom. It is gloriously diverse like this prism with these different facets, different colored facets, this multicolored prism through which people can see the manifold beauty of God. And I want you to imagine that sort of prism, this multicolored prism through which we can see different aspects of God's character and different aspects of His wisdom and different aspects of His glory. And you look at it. And then I want you to imagine that prism falling. Shattered. Because isn't that a little more of what we see today? Like if this is God's vision for the kingdom, what happened to that kingdom? I think of Fontaine and Les Mis and her I Dreamed a Dream song. At the end of it she says this, There are dreams that cannot be. There are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. I think of Dr. King giving that speech in 1963. And here we are, almost 55 years later. Does that ever feel like life's killed that dream? Like, can this ever be? Can it be? Is it a pipe dream? Because what happened to it? What happened to this kingdom? What happened to the kingdom, this gloriously diverse kingdom, is sin happened. That humanity, in a desire to exalt themselves above God, rejected the reign of God. And in that rejection of the reign of God, separated ourselves from God. And in that desire for self-exaltation, we are separated, divided from the presence of God. 
Because instead of submitting to the beauty of God's kingdom and God's rule over us, instead of living life the way He designed it with the beautiful diversity, what we said is, I want to do something with myself. I want to exalt myself. And so we push back the reign of God. And in that scene in Genesis chapter 3, when, when Eve takes the apple and then Adam takes the apple and they both eat of it and they both reject the reign of God, they're separated from His presence. They are now ashamed of who they are. And immediately after that, division enters into their relationship. Where they start heaping shame on one another. Start protecting themselves from one another. Start shifting blame to one another. And you see the way that the sin against God has permeated the human social structures that we live in. Where diverse people are now prone to separate themselves. Experience division because of the desire to exalt themselves and protect themselves, and defend themselves. And that kind of ingrown nature in our own hearts, which permeates our own being, has affected the way we interact with people that are different from us. It's actually made us a people that would much prefer to be around people that affirm our values, affirm our perspectives, affirm our default way of viewing the world. Which means people that affirm different values, different perspectives, different ways of viewing the world can feel like a threat to us. And so in this human nature of sin, our tendency is now to find ways to exalt ourselves over people that are different than us. And one of the ways we have most seen that unpacked throughout history is with a people of one color against the people of another color. One race against another race. And, and this is where racism comes in. The sin of racism is something that permeates society because the sin of self-exaltation is core to our own hearts. It's core to something we experience on a day-to-day basis. So what happened to this kingdom? The kingdom was broken because of sin. And I want to take a second and just unpack what that looks like. Because I'm aware in a room like this that there are many of us, and this would have been me growing up, be like, I'm not, like, I get it. Like, I love black people. I love brown people. Like, why is everybody talking about racism? Isn't that something from the 60s? Isn't that something from the slave trade? Isn't that something that we've passed? And it's not at all anything we've passed. Here's a definition of racism. Racism is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. It's this prejudice, this discrimination, this antagonism that's directed against somebody of a a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. Now, Now that desire to actually uphold the superiority of ourselves over other people, we've talked about that. That's that's sin. That's In us as humans, there's a propensity to that and it's evil. And our nation was founded on that sort of infrastructure, a people group, white Europeans, moving into a nation, pressing out the native people groups by force, kind of continuing to push them year after year, generation after generation, and sequestering them into smaller communities, taking over places, and then abducting human beings of a different color from a different continent, bringing them to our nation, our nation, and the nation that was stolen by white Europeans from Native Americans, and then taking these black Africans and subjecting them to slavery, 
selling them as property, giving them no rights, no ability to own land, no kind of privileges in this world. And that was the foundation of our nation for years and years and years until like 1863 is the Emancipation Proclamation. And that set up an infrastructure in our culture and it set up a default way of viewing the world for many people to actually begin to feel like white people are superior to people of other colors, other nations, other races. And to think that that just is gone is nonsense. It's nonsense because those structures continue. They continue to kind of form the legal fabric of our society. Even when you work into the Jim Crow laws in the 20th century, you're still feeling this institutional, systematic segregation and this oppression. And that was enforced and voted on by the majority culture at the expense of the minority cultures. A lot of our systems, a lot of our structures were created in that kind of thing and we ride them out. So is there growth? Is there awareness? Have there been movements? Did the civil rights make any progress? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But to think that these things are gone and done is, is crazy. It's crazy. Now there's a big difference between overt racism and implicit racism in the way you think about it but not necessarily in the way that people experience it from you. Let me kind of share what I think that is. Um, Explicit racism or overt racism includes these overt, explicit thoughts or actions or behaviors that demonstrate the, the, the uh, the conscious awareness that you feel superior to people of a different race. I, if that is in you, the overtness, that sense of superiority, once you look hard at the gospel, once you look hard at, at a God who created people from different people groups with equal value, equal worth, equal dignity, equal honor, and to know that that heart is evil, and to beg God to have mercy on you and to change that. I think that that's a real thing that we've seen in our country in very vivid, clear ways over the past few months. But overt racism isn't the only type of racism. There's also an implicit racism. Implicit racism includes unconscious biases, expectations, or tendencies that exist within an individual regardless of any ill will or self-aware prejudices. So it's the way you think about somebody when they come into a store. It's the way you interact with somebody when they're walking down the street. It's the way you think about walking into a context where there's people that are different than you and the immediate prejudices, uh, the immediate kind of biases that you put against people because of the color of their skin. But you might not even be aware. You might not feel any of that reality. but, But you respond accordingly. And these things exist in us a lot more than I think we'd want. To admit, I think they existed in me and existed in me in more ways than I want to admit. But there's no way we can experience transformation, the healing of the gospel, unless we begin to be honest about those realities. Unless we're honest about the stuff in our heart. People feel those things. If we can be honest about it, then we can go to God and confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to transform us by his grace to be people that love our neighbor well. There's over and implicit racism. I think the way I grew up was this sense of like, hey, like everybody's the same. We call it colorblindness, right? 
Colorblindness, like I see people and I interact with people that are of different colors and I don't think anything differently of them. Colorblindness is, is another pitfall. It's not good to be colorblind because the reality is people aren't all treated the same. And part of the, the difficulty of being colorblind is you begin to actually disregard the actual experience of the people that are different than you. To be colorblind is to disregard the fact that there are people that are oppressed. Our family lives in a Latino neighborhood. Our kids go to a 95% Latino school, a bilingual school. It's, it's important that our children learn, even though they're growing up in a place where like, they feel like all their best friends are brown, all of them. They're all brown. That's a really important thing. But it's also important in the midst of public discourse that our kids begin to learn why that their brown friends have experienced difficulty and why that their experience in this nation is, is painful in ways that my kids, my white kids, will never understand. And for our kids to be aware of that gives them empathy, gives them concern, helps them engage with thoughtfulness and care and wisdom and awareness. I don't want my kids to be colorblind. I want them to feel the beauty of growing up in a place where they learn from people that are different than them, but I don't want them to feel that like, hey, this is all the same, because it's not. Our kids will have privileges that other people will not have. Now we get into like minefield. <laughs> uh, privileges. When people talk about white privilege, a lot of people immediately go white guilt, right? Like, no, you're going you're gonna to start making me feel guilty for being white. That's not, that's not at all what I'm about to do. Do you hear me, please? That's not at all what I'm about to do. But I do want to say that there are privileges to being white that people of color do not experience. In a really incredible article and a helpful tool, Peggy McIntosh defines privilege as this. She says, it's an invisible package of unearned assets that I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I was meant to remain oblivious. When I moved to Denver several years ago, and I'm in the middle of this kind of like crazy rental market, we're going to move here, we're going to rent a house, and I feel like I'm going to send in kind of my text or my email, my interest thing, and, I, and what I think is, man, I'm going to send this, I'm going to try and get there, but if I can get a face-to-face, if I can like get a voice, if I can get on the phone with a person, if I can get a face-to-face, the chances of me getting kind of into this rental opportunity is much better, because I just have this sense that if I can meet with somebody face-to-face, they'll see that I'm a responsible person, they'll see that I'm a respectable person, they'll see that I'm somebody that will kind of steward their property well and take care of their things well. I have this sense that if people meet me, they meet me, not just kind of see me on paper, but if they meet me, they'll, they'll give me more opportunity, I'll have more opportunity to move forward. Did you know there are a lot of people in our city that feel the opposite? That man, if they see me, if they see the color of my skin, they might begin to import thoughts on me, make judgments about me because of whatever preconceived notions they have about people that share my color of skin. That puts me at a disadvantage to actually being welcomed into this housing situation. I have a friend in the city. He came and preached here earlier this year, Brandon Washington. He's a pastor of the embassy downtown, a wonderful, wonderful man, a wonderful pastor. He stood here in front of our church, and he shared with us as a church that he has been handcuffed on five occasions. He's a pastor. He's been handcuffed as a pastor on five occasions. 
He's never broken the law in any of those occasions. He's never had charges pressed against him in any of those occasions. But on five occasions, he was pulled over and handcuffed. He's here in our city. He's a, he's a friend of mine. He preached to us. Five occasions. He has to talk to his kids when, they, when they, they're going out, when they're going to learn to drive, when they engage about how to interact in the face of different systems and structures and people groups and, and what would happen if they get pulled over. When he gets pulled over, he's learned from a child. You keep your hands on the steering wheel. You never move. You never move until the police officer tells you exactly what to do. They see what you're doing. You announce what you're doing beforehand. When he's telling me these things, I'm hurting. Because you know what I think whenever I get pulled over? I can probably get out of this. I can probably get out of this. Number one, I can cry on a dime. Like, I like... <laughs> I can't actually. I'm really bad at crying. I don't know. I hear more and more sad stories. It's making me cry more. I, that might become useful. Um, like, I can cry. Or I can pull the pastor card. Be like, I'm rushing to this, like, this emergency situation. I'm a pastor. Don't worry, I'm a pastor. It's really important. You know, I should have a siren on my car like you because emergencies... <laughs> I get the call, I'm like, man, Ghostbusters, we're off. Um, no, you know how many times I've been handcuffed? Zero. Do you know how many times I thought I might get handcuffed? Zero. Do you know how many times I imagine I'll get handcuffed in my life? Zero. It's never even crossed my mind. Like, I'm going to shoot the breeze with this person. If they like me, if they're kind of having a good day, a bad day, I might get away. But they're going to like me. Isn't it crazy that people have a different experience than that? That there are people in our city that that's not at all how they feel. And there are good reasons for the fact that they don't feel that way. There are privileges that I have that I did not earn that are just attached to the color of my skin. Does that make me guilty? No, but should I be aware and care about the lack of advantage for people that are no different from me other than the fact that they have a different color skin? Yeah. These things are real. My wife has a, a number of friends um, that are refugees from different countries in Africa that she spends time with every week. And they went downtown. Uh, she drove in, in our van, our minivan downtown, to go to this kind of convention thing downtown. It was her and six women from Africa. And, uh, and they got out of the car, and they're going. And my wife realizes when she parks that she doesn't have her wallet. She forgot her wallet. She's like, no sweat. Here's two white guys over here. She walks up to these two white guys, and she's like, hey... This is crazy. I forgot my wallet. Um, would you mind paying my parking meter for me? And I was like, first of all, you should always do that. That's brilliant. You know, like, um, it's like two bucks a week, you know, is uh, coffee and whatever else you need. Anyway, they're like, yeah, no problem. She's like, no hesitation doing this. She had no hesitation doing this. And they walk back in and they see this group of black women with jobs and clearly Muslim. And there's this like, pause. Like, wait, what's going on here? And my wife is just like crushed. Because she thinks they would never do that. These women would never just walk up to, to two white people and say, hey, sorry, because they, because they know that their chances of that being a good experience are much less than my wife's chances. Why? Because of the color of their skin. This is the brokenness we live in. It's painful. It is painful. And it can be overwhelming. You start asking, like, could this change? Like, is there any hope that this could change? And that's what I love about this vision. And 
in Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, it's not a vision of a king building a, a kingdom kind of from the ground up with no difficulties. The culmination of this kingdom is a redeemed kingdom. That somehow the glory of the king is seen not just in the creation of this beautiful kingdom that he kind of built perfectly out of Legos. It was like there was a design, it got destroyed, and somehow his glory is more seen in his ability to redeem and restore the brokenness. And so here's what they say. It says that they actually are waving palm branches in their hands. Now the waving of palm branches came from a place in in Jewish history, you see this in like Psalm 118 where the people of God are crying out in the midst of brokenness, save us God, save us, please, save us, Hosanna, save us, please. And they would wave palm branches, beckoning, pleading, begging God, please save us from the brokenness we experience. And in Revelation chapter 7, the vision is that they're waving the palm branches like He did it. He saved us. He redeemed us. He healed the broken things. He fixed the divisions. He reconciled people to God and people to one another. And what they cry out is, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Like at the end of the day, the the overwhelming image is that God fixed the brokenness. He fixed it. He healed it. And the images of God are God sitting on a throne. And this image shows up all across Revelation. This God on His throne, reigning with sovereignty, reigning with power, reigning with authority, reigning with dominion, always in control, always wielding His authority to accomplish His redemptive purposes to bring salvation, to to restore His kingdom. And it's a beautiful picture of the power of God to heal this. Where is our hope in this brokenness? It is in the Lord who sits on the throne. There is a God. He sits on a throne. He is sovereign and powerful and He has the ability to restore everything that's broken. How do we know? Because He was broken once. See, the image isn't just the Lord on the throne. It's a lamb. A sacrificial lamb. A lamb who had been slain. Before the foundation of the world, God's plan was to come and to be a lamb and to be slain, to be divided, to be pierced, to be torn apart, to pay the penalty for our sin, for our racism, for our self-exaltation, for our pride, to shed His blood, to take that penalty upon Himself, and in His resurrection, to heal his own death, and then to offer that healing to all who would come to him. The healing of torn hearts, the healing of broken hearts, the healing of divided relationships, the healing of divided cities and divided nations, the restoration of a broken world finds its hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for us. This is what God has done to restore his kingdom. What is he doing to fix the brokenness? He paid the penalty for the brokenness. He rose again to show us His power to restore the brokenness. And in that work, He also shows us what it means to be a people who live in light of this reality. 
He's bringing redemption. He's bringing salvation. He's bringing forgiveness. He's bringing grace. He's bringing love. He's bringing reconciliation. He's bringing all of these things and He's showing us, He's leading us in what this restored kingdom looks like. It looks like a people who don't consider their own interests of the gover- as the governing value of their lives, but they consider the interests of others as the governing value of their lives. This is what Jesus has done. He shows us that the glory of God is beautifully seen. The kingdom of God is beautifully magnified as people live the way He did, laying down our lives for the good of other people, people that are different from us. So what does that mean for us as a people? I have a few things here as we close. What does it mean for us as we have hope in this God? How should we then live? First is this, that the gospel allows you to learn, to repent, and to lament. The gospel allows you to learn, to repent, and to lament. One of the difficulties, if you've not thought about these things much, if you haven't been around friends, if you don't have friends that look different than you, and you don't have friends that are sharing with you these realities, which I just want to be really clear, really, really clear. Uh, To sit down with a person from a minority culture and to ask them, like, hey, tell me how you feel. Um, it's a very vulnerable spot for them to be in. Uh, Friends in this church from minority cultures, those of you who have engaged with our elder team and leaders around this, like your generosity and your vulnerability and your graciousness is like through the roof beautiful. It's through the roof beautiful. Because it is a vulnerable place to be when people kind of like unknowingly be like, hey, like tell me what hurts about your life, you know? Like tell me about the deepest pains of your experience. And tell me about the fact that our, our ignorance of those, and tell me about how that continues to be hurtful. And tell me about how the passivity of this conversation, I'm going to talk and, and you're not going to see a lot of change. Tell me about how that hurts, right? Like there's a pain there. Honor that. Honor that. Please honor that. And friends that, that have shown that generosity and that vulnerability, thank you. Thank you. But we learn. Keep learning. Keep looking. Keep your eyes open. Pay attention. Read books. We're going to send out an email tomorrow with a list of resources that our elder team has been reading and learning and looking into. Learn. And when you learn, you're going to see things about yourself that attitudes and actions and things from your past. And when you see those, because of the gospel and the love of God, you can repent. You can turn from those. You can confess them to God. This is part of the brokenness of my heart that you died for. Will you forgive me? And would you heal me? And would you change me? Because I want to honor you in the way I interact with people you've made. Repent. But then you're also going to see see things that you're not responsible for. Broken things that aren't yours. That's where lamentation comes in. To actually just grieve the brokenness. Just grieve it before God. Cry out, how long, O Lord? How long will these things continue to be? This is sad. Like, grieve the brokenness before the face of God. That's what lamenting is. Feel it. Grieve it. Weep about it. Feel the complexity of this issue. Feel how daunting it is. Every time I press in and think harder and harder and press in, I get more overwhelmed, which leads me to lamentation. God, how long? Come, Lord Jesus. Come. And restore the brokenness. The gospel moves you into learning, into repentance, and into lamentation. Next, the gospel moves you towards your neighbor. Your diverse neighbor. The gospel moves us to be a people that are committed to engaging relationally. What segregation has done, and if you look at the history, even of housing in our cities, 
it's, it's devastatingly painful to look at the history of housing and how it set up infrastructures that, that now keep us largely, without intentionality and thoughtfulness, separated from people that are different than us. Like, it's, it's overt. You can look at housing covenants in Denver, Colorado, and there are neighborhoods that in the 1920s were set up white people-only neighborhoods. And to think that those just changed one day whenever the Supreme Court decided those were unconstitutional restrictions is crazy. They didn't just change. Those fabrics were already set. They existed. And so you live in a place where the people tend to be a lot like you. Without intentionality, that will never change. And here's what happens. Segregation leads to distance. And without distance, it's impossible to empathize. Or with distance, it's impossible to empathize. And if you don't have empathy, then you're going to be passive and uncontesting of the injustices and inequalities in our world. The only way forward is to actually pursue proximity because proximity creates empathy. This is one of the things Brandon taught us. Proximity creates empathy. Pressing into these relationships and friendships not as benefactor, as a learner, as a help me see the beauty of God through these people. It creates empathy. For our family, uh, we live in Villa Park, which is a couple miles south of here. It was probably 90-something percent Latino. A few years ago, it's down to like 82% Latino because everything that's happening up here is moving like a freight train. We moved in this neighborhood with non-English-speaking neighbors, put our kids in a school that's a bilingual school because we want to be here as learners. We don't want to be here as the gentry driving out. We want to be here as learners. And what we have learned is beautiful. Now, I want to tell you, like, I'm, like, nowhere close to, like, a mo- I'm, like, learning and trying to respond and responding really poorly in really broken ways. Even in the, you know, like, the 95% Latino school, I still, like, it's a lot easier for me to talk to the 5% white people at the school event, Right? Like, it still requires intentionality, but trying to anchor our, ourselves as a family and communities with people that we can learn from. To learn about the, the way that the people in my neighborhood, my particular neighbors, my next-door neighbors, the way they celebrate with intergenerational family is beautiful. Like, it's beautiful to see their joy and their celebration with their family. That this family does not make decisions based on, like, what a kid wants to do. Like, the parents of this family weren't like, where do I want to live? They're always making decisions connected to the whole of their family. They're always making decisions for the good of their whole family. What a beautiful thing to learn. What a beautiful thing to see. What a beautiful picture of the family of God. Like, it's beautiful. My wife spends time every week with a a number of women in the neighborhood right next to ours, which is Sun Valley. Sun Valley, there's a heavy refugee population there. She spends time every week um, just building friendships with these women, in particular women and children. And and it has been, like, derailing for us as we consider the lives of some of these women and, and men and women who have sacrificed the entirety of their lives, all of their vision and dreams about the future, their homes and everything for the sake of their children. They left everything, everything they had earned and accomplished and everything they had kind of succeeded in, left all of it to come to a place where they're ostracized and alone. They work ridiculous hours, many of them, have experienced incredible losses, the death of children and many other incredible pains. And their kids are just like, growing up, going to school, coming in with headphones, listening to music, like, and have opportunity. And the parents sacrifice their lives for the sake of their children. What a beautiful picture of the image of God. 
My tendency is to use my children to exalt myself and to think like, man, you're getting in my way of my vision and my dreams and my aspirations. That's not what God's like. He's much more like this Somalian woman that's been in our home that we've got to know and we're like, wow, that's what God's like. Sacrificing himself for his children. Engage relationally. Press into those things. It's going to require intentionality. Our elder team has been talking and holding each other accountable. What are our own plans personally as, as leaders in the church, but as individuals and families to engage relationally, to press in and think strategically about how to get in proximity where we can learn and build friendships with people that are different than us, hoping that that changes us and makes us more aware of these broken things and brings reconciliation. And the last one is the gospel motivates us to fight for justice. To fight for justice, to speak for justice, to stand up for justice. When you see it overtly, when you hear it implicitly, to challenge it. When you're around people that haven't thought about things and they're speaking from a position of blindness or ignorance. To press in and provoke questions and and challenge them. Like some of us when we go home for Thanksgiving, like need to potentially ruin our Thanksgiving. I'm serious. In Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham city jail, he talks about positive peace versus negative peace. Negative peace he refers to as the absence of tension. Positive peace is the presence of justice. A lot of us tend to prefer negative peace, the absence of tension. We don't want to stir up tension. We'd rather things be peaceful. But are they really peaceful when injustice exists? Well, they are for you. The only way towards justice requires tension. Because it requires challenging the status quo. And we'll never experience justice if Christians don't challenge the racist status quo that exists in our country. So when you see it, challenge it. Not as somebody who all of a sudden figured it out and you're far better than that person. But as another learner, as somebody who's experiencing grace, but you challenge it. When somebody posts a stupid thing on Facebook, don't respond to them on Facebook. Call them say, listen, I love you. Take that crap down. You don't know who you're hurting. You don't know who you're, you're saying it. You're speaking from a position until you've been in these things. Like, don't say that stuff. When people are hurting, pay attention to the voices that they're hurting instead of criticizing the way they're, they're sharing their voice. Instead of arguing about whether they should have done this way or that way or whether they should have said this phrase or that phrase or whether they should have taken a knee or not taken a knee, listen to the voices of the hurting. God does. God does. Listen. Pay attention. Press in and fight for justice because God has called us to this. The end of this passage is beautiful. Verse 11, all creation, every being, everywhere, worshiping God. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're saying, let it be so. This is our hope. This is our prayer. Will we be a people that say, Amen. Let it be, Jesus. Let it be. We're going to close with a corporate prayer. So I actually want you all to stand up together. And we're going to close holding hands uh, together. And we're going to read together this prayer from the Lord's Prayer. I want you to focus in on let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you join me as we share this prayer? 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.